LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name's Greg Moffat and my guest today is Scott Tips, President of the National Health Federation. Scott is with us today to discuss a number of issues around health freedom, including Codex Alimentarius and the increasingly draconian restrictions being placed on vitamins and other food supplements and what this means for the growing number of people who are proactively taking care of their own health in an attempt to avoid the institutionalized healthcare establishment, which all too frequently holds the interests of pharmaceutical corporations and other transnational business interests over those of individual patients. Hello and welcome Scott Tips and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well thank you Greg, it's nice to be here. Uh, now we're going to uh, be talking today all about Codex Alimentarius which we'll come to in a moment but just for the benefit of uh, listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work perhaps you could just uh, tell us, uh, give us an overview of the National Health Federation and what it does. Well, the National Health Federation is an American-based but international health freedom organization. In fact, we're the oldest health freedom organization in the world, having been founded in 1955. Uh, the original founders are no longer with us, um, but uh, we carry on their mission, which is basically to promote the right of individuals, such as you and me, uh, to... Uh, consume whatever foods and take whatever uh, alternative complementary medicinal elements that we wish, including dietary supplements. And we are quite um, energetic about protecting those rights. But this also goes beyond that. It also includes your right not to be poisoned, such as fluoridation in the water supply, these mandatory vaccines with all their toxic elements inside them that have definitely, thanks to the works of Andrew Wakefield and others, have been linked to triggering autism across the autistic uh, spectrum in individuals, especially young boys and young girls. And... Uh, and that's what we do. We're the only organization, only health freedom organization, to have a seat at the Codex Alimentarius table, which means that in this international body that is establishing, sort of in the dark corners of the world, is establishing uh, international food rules and regulations, standards and guidelines, they call them, but they get adopted into rules and regulations by the national state members of Codex. We're the only health freedom voice really that's there. I mean, we have others who will uh, occasionally come on board and, and fight our fight with us, but we're the only ones that are consistently there for health freedom, whether it's your right to consume high potency vitamin and mineral supplements or it's your right not to have 
uh, veterinary drug like ractopamine in your in the meat that you consume that will then act as a steroid on your own system just as it did on the animals so it's it runs the whole gambit and we have members in 20 different countries I'm the president of the organization currently and I'm also probably its chief spokesman and uh, in that respect I travel around the world and give speeches and uh, write articles and the like well um a lot of people will, of course, be aware that, um, well, government regulation gets into um, virtually all areas of our, our life, but that in with regards to food safety and uh, issues like, you know, vitamins and supplements, that government regulation and, uh, you know, at a, and also at an EU uh, level, European Union level, I should say, for those of us living in the UK and Europe, has kind of gone from being... Um, sort of benign oversight, making sure that uh, food uh, providers and, and uh, you know, um, supplement manufacturers and what have you sort of behave themselves. It's kind of crossed over. It's gone far beyond that now to the point where it's starting to uh, impose restrictions that are actually um, basically delivering results that are opposite to what the original intention behind the legislation was. So um, to address that issue, perhaps you could uh, give us Codex Alimentarius in a nutshell and what that what that whole process is about, how it started, um, how it developed and what it's where it is now. Um, I'd be happy to, Greg. And, and basically, Codex Alimentarius is just Latin for food code. So keep in mind, of course, as you know, that it only deals with food, but there are spillover effects because a lot of people you know, follow the old uh, caution that let food be your medicine. So necessarily by creating standards and guidelines for foods, uh, Codex does have an effect on medicines, even though it directly does not. Indirectly, at the very least, it does. But be that as it may, the <clears throat> the reach of Codex is worldwide. 99% of the world's population is affected by it. 99% of the countries in the world are members of Codex Alimentarius. So what is it? It was created in the early 60s, 1960s, under the auspices of the Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Health Organization. They wanted to create a body, and it <clears throat> started in a very sleepy way. Uh, no one paid much attention to it, starting with creating standards from anything from honeys and vegetables to natural mineral waters, food labeling and the like and early on it realized it couldn't do all the work itself this body was composed of its country members just a few at that stage and they would meet alternately in Rome the headquarters of the FAO or in Geneva uh, the headquarters of the WHO and that still continues to this day but what is expanded from codex is that it's given birth to a number of committees almost 27 at this stage that specialize in certain food areas some of those i've already mentioned such as natural mineral waters and these committees are hosted by member states like natural mineral waters is hosted by switzerland Germany hosts the Nutrition Committee, Canada hosts the Food Labeling, the United States hosts uh, Food Hygiene, China hosts Food Additives, the Netherlands will host Contaminants in Food, the French host uh, the General Principles Committee, and so on. The list goes on. 
and I won't cover everything because we'd be here all day. But the the important thing to know is that these committees do the hard work that then results in a standard being created or a guideline. And the difference is a guideline is sort of the broad strokes parameters of, of what, what the food or the principles that govern the food standard. The standards give the hard numbers. <clears throat> For example, one of the things that NHF fought so hard uh, two and a half years ago in Dusseldorf at the Codex Committee on Nutrition and Foods for Special Dietary Uses with the tongue-tripping acronym of CCNFSDU is some nutrient reference values which are recommended daily allowances that uh, are basically establishing the amounts that represent 100% of the RDA <clears throat> are in some countries RDI and now they're calling them NRVs. That's your recommended and, daily intake basically. Exactly and we fought that, NHF fought that, I fought that on behalf of NHF at the Dusseldorf meeting in November 2009 because I saw they'd come up with a plan to um, to diminish the amount. For example, the already low NRV or RDI for uh, vitamin C was 60 milligrams. Well, you smoke one cigarette and you destroy 60 milligrams. And the funny thing is that the Australian delegate had this brilliant idea to lower it to 45 milligrams, uh, which is ludicrous, to also lower the amount of uh, vitamin A as well, to lower the amount of magnesium while simultaneously increasing the amount of calcium, which is a recipe for disaster right there. Those are twin minerals. Most people get too much calcium, too little magnesium. They wanted to continue that sort of mismatch in proportions. Uh, lower a number of other things, interestingly enough, not lower fluoride. And uh, the only thing they were really increasing besides calcium was uh, the folate just barely, but if the other B-complex vitamins to lower them all. So this is ridiculous. Most people aren't getting enough anyway. Now, to people like you or me or maybe most of the people listening to this, it wouldn't matter because we already know that 60 milligrams is not enough. We want several grams a day. <clears throat> and so it's meaningless to us because we'll just disregard the percent NRV. But to the vast bulk of the population, this is critical because they go out and they, they don't know the numbers. They don't know that 60 milligrams is nothing. Uh, so to them, they see, oh, yeah, I'm drinking this orange juice and I'm getting 100% of my RD, RDI or NRV. Let's go party. And they're ready to go have a good time now because they've gotten enough vitamin C, not realizing that 60 milligrams is woefully inadequate especially if they're cigarette smokers, especially if they're undergoing stress, especially if they're ill. Uh, a large number of things would trigger, just normal life would trigger higher requirements for vitamin C. So I went semi-ballistic on this and fought a battle for about an hour at that meeting and, and forced them down. <clears throat> we are still fighting that battle, but we've won it every year. Each year this committee meets. Each year, NHF is one, and we've garnered more and more support as the years have gone on. But the real climactic battle will be this coming December in Germany when we have the next meeting, uh, and they'll try to set the actual numbers finally. So we have a big battle ahead of us. And, but this is just one example of what they're doing, and I just use that as an illustration. Now, 
you had mentioned something about the UK, and I just wanted to pay a compliment to the UK because the UK, <clears throat> up until the European Union's Food Supplements Directive came about, was one of the bright lights in Europe when it came to dietary supplements because you there have a lot of had a lot of free to sell a lot of different vitamin and mineral supplements that weren't often found elsewhere, certainly on the continent. Um, there, Ireland, I would say the UK, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Sweden were the four freest countries in the EU until this leveling effect of the EU Food Supplements Directive came in, which, by the way, <clears throat> is dovetailed with the, with the um, Codex Food and, and Mineral, uh, I'm sorry, Vitamin Mineral Food Supplements guidelines that are still being worked on. So uh, it's a shame that the UK is now seeing its freedom slip under the waves along with the Netherlands, same thing in Ireland, same thing with Sweden. Uh, a little bump in freedom for Germany and France, but not enough to really notice as they go to the lowest common denominator, which is less freedom. And this is all part and parcel of this problem with rules and regulations, because people seem to think, oh, let's make things safer. It's all about safety. They forget the other side of the coin which is freedom, and actually there's more safety and freedom. It seems like it doesn't go together, but it actually does. There's more safety and freedom than there is in control. And the lesson that people forget in the United States and elsewhere uh, is that rules and regulations don't come without a cost. They all cost something. And I don't know if you want me to talk about the cost of supplements, but here's something right here. Supplements are incredibly safe. That's one thing to keep in mind. You know, in 35 years in the United States, maybe, maybe, by the biggest stretch of imagination, you might have had five deaths from supplements, maybe. Hmm. And, and uh, in the last eight years, there have been none. And yet these people, I'm using a euphemism here, these people these regulators, both in the UK and at Codex and elsewhere for that matter, they're enacting all these rules and regulations, standards and guidelines at very large cost to try to maybe save the lives of five people over 35 years. But what they forget is the cost of this because they're going to increase the cost of the supplements. They're going to take supplements off the market that could really help people's health. So just imagine a balancing act in two hands. So on one hand, you have five deaths. And of course, those five deaths we, we would all regret, anyone would regret. But keep in mind that opposed to that are literally thousands, tens of thousands, maybe millions of lives that are going to be badly affected because the price of supplements and the availability of the supplements, the potency of the supplements will no longer be there to help them. If you're only getting 400 international units of vitamin D, that's not really going to help you. And that's what the norm is in most countries in the world today. What people really need is about 5,000 international units of vitamin D. No, the numbers don't make any sense. It's like the uh, so-called anti-terrorist legislation uh, that just, you know, affects detrimentally just almost every anyone who's ever gone through an airport, you know, since 9-11 will appreciate 
the detrimental effects of this legislation. And the people behind it will say, oh, well, if, if only one life is saved as a result of this, it's no, actually, it doesn't stack up like that. There is an actual cost and there's a point at which it's not a good idea to save one person's life to then ruin the lives or not perhaps ruin the life, but inconvenience, you know, mm. everybody in the entire world going forward in perpetuity isn't a good trade off. And as far as the safety of supplements goes, I mean, we hear often of uh, people killing themselves, committing suicide using prescription drugs, for example. But you, I've not in my lifetime ever heard of anyone taking their own life by ODing on supplements. And no, we, have a, we have a classic no, case uh, here. But sorry, Scott, go on. No, I was just going to just add into that. And actually, this is a case of regulations killing people because, for instance, they will dictate in their ignorance a particular form of a supplement that is less healthy for someone, such as vitamin D2, actually can be toxic at very high doses, but vitamin D3, very tough to overdose on it. Uh, iron, iron supplements. There's a very safe form of iron that people could take, even a child, and they wouldn't overdose on it, but it's not allowed in the under the EU directive. Uh, but the other form that is dangerous is allowed. So actually, these regulations build into it these dangerous effects. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to make that point. Oh, no, that, that that's fine. No problem. I mean, you gave us a list earlier on of, of committees and where they were located and what they were uh, overseeing. And I was getting a headache just thinking about it. We have a classic... <laughs> Uh, you know, government uh, bureaucracy here, or in the case of the EU, you know, sort of uh, unelected, unaccountable bureaucracy, overseeing all this uh, regulation. But th the first question perhaps that might pop into the mind of uh, laymen is, well, what specialist knowledge is going into this? I mean, these bureaucrats, do they have teams of advisors? I mean, how do they know what's, what to set limits at and uh, what to regulate? Well, it's a very good question you ask, Greg, because they really don't. They think they know, but most of these people have very poor nutritional knowledge. Um, they are mostly government bureaucrats who are trained in extra caution. So to them, the, the safest thing is to throw a blanket over something and suffocate it so no one will die. Uh, whether it's an idea, whether it's a beneficial thing. And they have a toxicological model that they're applying across the board. They think that you should treat a natural substance the way you treat a newly created synthetic drug. And that's just not right. I mean, the natural substance we've evolved with, we were created with, depending on your point of view, you, you pick it, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that for all of our lives and our ancestors' lives, we've, we've existed w with it or a variation on a theme of it. <clears throat> and this is something very natural. Or we've been around it for a long time. We know by use that it's going to be safe. It doesn't need to be subjected to the drug model where you have, as it happens in the States, it takes eight to 10 years to approve a drug and it takes half a billion dollars to get it approved, to apply that to natural supplements. And this is where I was going before with the example, you know, in the, in the States, I uh, can buy enough vitamin D3 natural in a very high quality form and it will cost, I'll take 5,000 international units a day. It'll cost me about two euros a month. 
Well, about the same time that I was fighting that battle, in fact, right after I fought that battle in Dusseldorf on the NRVs, I flew to Finland to Helsinki, and I gave a speech there on health freedom, in fact, very similar to the one you heard at AV2 in London. But the funny thing is, before the meeting, I just, as a kind of a lark, went with the head of NHF Finland there to a local health food store, and I wanted to look at the vitamin D there. And I saw if I assembled a whole bunch of small, low-potency vitamin D3, uh, very tightly regulated by the Finnish government, by the way, for safety and quality. Uh, I could, if I spent 40 euros a month, I could take what I was taking for 2 euros a month from the U.S. So 40 euros versus 2 euros. And that's just to make <clears throat> their products supposedly safer. In fact, <clears throat> I am almost certain based on my knowledge and experience as a food and drug lawyer, that the quality and the safety of the finished product was inferior to the American one at two euros. So 40 euros bought me no more safety, no more quality, but it certainly would have discouraged me and think if you had a number of other vitamins to take as well. So that's what this system is doing. Yet on the other hand, they have, and I use quote marks around it, free medical care that directs people, and people are very proud of this in the European Union, in all these various countries, we have free. I mean, even in the UK, you have the NHS. Free, free, free. Well, it's not free. One, the taxpayers pay for it, and they pay an awful lot because government's incredibly inefficient and a very incredibly inefficient provider of services. I don't care what it is, whether it's military, whether it's social services, you name it. It'll be double, triple, quadruple the price that the private enterprise can provide, and it'll be lower quality. But the fact of the matter is these free services are driving normal citizens into the drug model of health, not into the alternative health. Think of the person who goes out and they don't even know that vitamin D, especially in Finland where there are a lot of clouds and they aren't going to produce it naturally in their skin for five, five sevenths of the, of the year, that they could be helped. It could help lower cancer rates. It would help lower uh, their infection rate to viruses and other diseases just by taking it. It would help strengthen their bones and their teeth so they'd have less, fewer dental caries and less dental disease. You know, any number of things like this. But of course, you can't say that for a natural product. But for a drug, you can say it. <clears throat> and so here, you can see the consumer weighing, oh, for a, a one euro, I can get this subsidized drug from the Finnish national healthcare. But on the other hand, I have to pay 40 euros for this vitamin D. Well, of course, if it were only two euros, it'd be less of a, of a problematic uh, question in the consumer's minds. They could go, well, maybe for two euros, I'll still get the vitamin D. But when you price something out of normal consideration while at the same time subsidizing harmful, toxic drugs, what are you doing? You're skewing the economy, the medical economy, towards the wrong way of health. So this supposedly free system is really a trap, and a lot of people don't realize it. They think people are deprived, and yet actually they're being channeled, funneled into this disease state. So that's one reason I don't care about whether I have uh, free health care in the U.S. or not. I could care less because I don't want that kind of health care. Yeah, you know, if I break a leg or an arm, there's nothing better than to go to a good 
American hospital that will treat me for a traumatic injury like that. That I wouldn't hesitate to do, but for chronic or degenerative diseases, I'd run the other way. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, the the drug model, uh, people being steered towards that. And when you begin to probe what's going on with uh, Codex Alimentarius and, and the legislation and where things are going, it's not long before you find out that it's not just benign you know, uh, erring on the side of caution, you then begin to see the hand of commercial interests behind this and specifically uh, big pharmaceutical companies. Yes, you're right. And they have been the big bugaboo for all of us for a very long time. But think about how they do it. Um, you know, no one forces you or me to go to Tesco to buy food. We go voluntarily if we go. Maybe we go to another store instead, but we at least have a choice. What the drug companies are doing, what a lot of the bigger companies are doing, is they're seeing they're losing the battle in the natural health care, well, certainly in the healthcare marketplace. So instead of fighting it out in a free market system, they are using really a state capitalist type system where they run to the government for protection. Oh, I'm sorry, they call it protecting the consumer. They don't call it protecting the drug companies. They have to call it something else. So they very cleverly call it protecting the consumer. And they reach out to the government in London, to Washington, D.C., to Ottawa, to Brussels, you name it. That's the name of the game. And that's why in the U.S. they spend $6 million a day in lobbying the halls of Congress and the regulatory agencies like the FDA. And of course, it means a lot to them. If they don't get a drug approved, they could go out of business or at least their bottom line could be very adversely affected. So it's uh, the time-honored tradition <clears throat> in a state capitalist society is to run and use the government to enforce rules and regulations that will effectively stifle or eliminate the competition and that's what they're doing here and the sad thing is a lot of people quite correctly point out the problem with these big pharmaceutical companies but they very wrongly think that the solution is to give more power to the government well that's like throwing gasoline on the fire what they would love that because that gives them more rules to run it their way because who's going to control it it's not going to be the good guys you and me the people who have at least a reasonable interest in good health, it's going to be the ones who spend the $6 million a day lobbying, the ones who spend a large percent of their focus time on uh, government and what it's doing. So it's just a joke to think that giving more powers to the government are, is going to do anything to help our, us, our health, or our freedoms. What you need to do is bind down government take away its coercive powers so that these big companies have to fight it out in the free marketplace. And believe you me, over time, they will disappear um, and they will not be able to stay. I mean, people used to think in the 50s, who could ever take on IBM? Well, who even hears about IBM anymore? They're, you know, they're basically out of business except in certain market segments that don't really directly affect us. All these other new and upcomers have come about. Same thing with natural health care. If we just got government out of the business of health care, government has no place in health care. There is no basic right to health care because, and this is a whole other argument here, there's a basic right to have the right to strive 
for health, but you don't have the right to have it at someone else's expense. You have the right to achieve it and spend your money for it in any way you wish. And this is a basic libertarian philosophy that uh, goes way back. And we could have a big discussion on that. And probably some of your listeners are going, wait a minute, I'm not going to go that far. But maybe in another program, we could we could get into that more. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've already touched upon, I've already done it shows regarding, you know, actual free market and libertarian ideas and basically anarcho-capitalism where, you know, you completely, no government, basically stateless situation. And that is an entire other discussion. Fascinating yeah. one, actually. Um, but as you say, that could we could spend all day on that. Um, well, regarding the sort of, logically, if you think about it, uh, big pharmaceutical companies and other people operating in this basic area, I mean, logically, they should be ultimately going out of business because if they're good at what they're doing and basically as going forward human health should be a constantly improving situation diseases should be disappearing and as you say apart from traumatic injuries you know every day someone goes out and has a nasty accident and they need help and pain killing drugs for example may well be part of that but pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be thriving there shouldn't be ever more drugs um, being produced going forward, people shouldn't be getting sicker. There shouldn't be more need for for more pharmaceutical companies, basically. Yeah, you're you're very right, Greg. Um, uh, on all those points, and really, the problem is the whole system is broken. And what they're trying to do, as they were doing in the U.S. with Obamacare, and trying to force all these people into the health health insurance scheme that they have there. Uh, and I realize scheme is not a bad word in British English, but in American English it is. Uh, the fact of the matter is that they're just trying to patch up a broken system of disease care, and they should be going out of business. The interesting corollary to all of this, though, is that the drug companies, they aren't dummies. They are actually full of a lot of very smart people, and they see the handwriting on the wall. So what have they been doing? A lot of them have been buying up the larger drug, uh, I'm sorry, the larger dietary supplement companies in the U.S. For example, Capsugel that makes the liquid capsules. It's owned by Pfizer. Uh, and the same thing applies to a number of other companies, um, dietary supplement and natural health companies in the U.S. and internationally as well. The drug companies are getting in there and buying those. They're also going into the medical device field. So you see a lot of their expansion sort of horizontally to try to preserve uh, their market share, their very existence. Uh, but, you know, time, time will pass and we will see that the pharmaceutical companies, if they aren't propped up by government and government coercive power to force us to deal with them as it has been through these medical mafia monopolies like the American Medical Association and the like that require us to go through all of this drug and doctor model and with a monopoly on the word, even the word cure, uh, then we will see them pass away into time just as IBM has. Well, it will be interesting to see where things go because there is certainly an increasing awareness of, um, well, th things that were common knowledge at one time but were lost to us, you know, natural therapies, natural cures, and 
uh, things that we can do for ourselves that ourselves that stem from the fact that everything that we basically need, barring the traumatic injuries we spoke of, everything we basically need to be healthy has already been provided for us by nature, essentially. Yes, that's true. Now, you know, I, I'm not a, a Luddite in the sense that I think, you know, all progress or all things synthetic or bad. Uh, my friends, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw, who <clears throat> 30 years ago were quite famous because they wrote a book called Life Extension, which was a bestseller for a good number of weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And I was their very close friend, still am a close friend, but was their attorney as well for a while. They said something very interesting, which was, um, if you want to live on a, on a natural lifespan, then you've got to do some unnatural things. They didn't mean it in a weird, kinky way. They meant it in a health way. So there are certain things you can do. And another client and friend of mine, Bill Sardi, has pointed out that there are things you can do really under the science of epigenetics that will enable you to live longer and healthier no matter what your genetic heritage is, no matter if your mother or father died early of a heart attack or cancer, it really doesn't matter. There are natural substances out there or uh, tweaks on natural substances that will permit you to get by that. I mean, resveratrol is a prime example. If you take resveratrol in moderate doses, you don't want to take high dose like some companies are claiming. More is better. That's actually wrong. It's a J-shaped benefit curve. So you get a benefit from, say, you know, one to 100 milligrams, and after that, the benefits start reversing. So you want to be very careful not to take, unless you have cancer or something, I suppose, but, you know, talk to your doctor. But you don't want to generally take more than 100 milligrams of resveratrol and not at the same time as vitamin C because it diminishes its effectiveness. But anyway, I'm getting beyond the point and just want to, the point being that you can affect your own genetics, uh, whether your genes are turned on and off, epigenetically through natural substances that will help keep you healthy. Oh, yeah. And there are, you know, to add to what I, I said in my point previously, you can, there are certainly tweaks to already, you know, naturally occurring foods and substances um there's a whole area a whole marketplace now in what they call superfoods where people have basically taken what nature has provided and honed it down and you know zeroed in on what the really um the, the optimum uh ingredients or you know elements are in that in that food stuff uh, so we can certainly improve in that area but the, the fundamental point still being that it's 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 already here and uh we have a situation now where it, um there's a tension between increasing interest and awareness of um, healing ourselves in a natural way and using food as medicine, uh, a tension between that and the uh, moves that the pharmaceutical companies are making into that area. Because as you say, you go to uh, your average health food store now, certainly here in the UK, many health food stores are basically part of chains, quite large companies. And you look at the products they have on their shelves and they're quite often manufactured by in the first instance big companies and then you look at these big companies and you find oh actually they're part of a, an umbrella group that includes pharmaceuticals yes exactly yeah and i'm sorry I, i'm glad you mentioned that greg but there are drug companies that are buying up food company interests as well i don't recall which ones to be honest but uh but that is occurring on a 
fairly regular basis these days. But yeah, there are lots of things people can do to, to maintain their health. And it's not only taking the right foods, but it's also avoiding the wrong foods. Um, in the case of men, for example, most men get way too much iron. You know, the the dietary and nutritional recommendations that are out there, kind of this another case of of government regulation and trying to help people gone wrong. It's all made for growing boys and girls and menstruating women. Well, that's great for them to get that kind of iron. But as a man, it's a disaster. There's a, a lot of evidence that shows that 80% of the difference in lifespan between men and women is accounted for by the fact that men accumulate iron at a far greater rate than women do because women are having their monthly periods. They're getting rid of excess iron. In fact, a lot of them are bordering on anemia. And the standards for taking iron are slated or geared towards them and towards developing children who need iron for growing and developing and, and creating red blood cells. But for us, iron, which is very carcinogenic, cancer cells need it to grow and spread, which is very proviral, viruses need it to grow and uh, to enlarge and spread, and which is basically uh, pro-oxidant it can oxidize the heck out of any cell in your body. That's why the hemoglobin molecule is so special. You have a tightly bound iron uh, atom in there, separated at a distance from an oxygen atom, and it's kept that way for a reason, because it doesn't want to oxidize your system or rust your system, so to speak. But by the time a typical man, 50 years old, he'll have four times, maybe just three times, three to four times the amount of iron that a 50-year-old woman will have. Now, once women reach menopause and they stop menstruating, then they start rapidly catching up with men in the cancer rates and heart attack rates. But in the meantime, men need to be extremely careful to not eat uh, so much red meat, or if they do, to drink a, a glass of red wine with it because that will block the iron uptake. A glass of beer will increase the iron uptake, but a glass of red wine freshly opened, not sitting around for several days, will block the uptake of, uh, of iron. So it's that's one example of where foods, we need to avoid foods. The other are like high fructose corn syrup, uh, aspartame, a lot of these additives that are in our foods these days that really make us into obese cows. And who knows, maybe that's what, what they're trying to do to us. Who knows? Well, yeah, that's the other side of this, of course, is not just uh, supplements and vitamins, uh, but actual food additives. Because even though, I mean, here in the UK, there was quite some furore uh, in years gone by about so-called E-numbers, and those were uh, drastically reduced in uh, processed foods but you go and look at your average processed you know um, tv dinner for example or whatever it happens to be any processed food really you read the list of ingredients which is always a yeah. great deal longer than the list of ingredients would be if you were to make that item yourself from scratch and uh, that's something else that that you're very much involved in is uh, food additives yes we've been fighting at the codex level and other levels, we were the only ones speak out against aluminum in food, as in food, and particularly in food additives. And I did that for a number of years. Finally, had the EU representative come on board after EFSA, the European Food Safety Authority, came out with some science that showed that we were actually right. 
and uh, then then what happened is uh, it started to go more in our favor. The same thing I wish we could repeat with uh, aspartame, but unfortunately, by the time we got into the game, it was very far advanced, and the aspartame proponents, like G.D. Searle and others, uh, had convinced everyone of the safety of aspartame, which is, of course, very wrong. And uh, actually, there's a lot of evidence that shows these diet drinks are more likely to make the drinkers fat than the non-diet drinks. It's, um, you know, a complete, complete uh, uh, travesty of, of health there. And people who think they're being safer by drinking Diet Pepsi or Diet Coke than by drinking the regular ones, they're absolutely flat out wrong. They count calories and they forget that aspartame bypasses the satiation signal that even sugar will turn on, but aspartame and the others won't turn on, and they tend to consume more drinks and foods, thereby actually consuming more calories. Yeah, there's a lot of things <clears throat> out there that people do in uh, in an effort to sort of uh, you know be healthier, lose weight, whatever it happens to be. They don't realize that it's not hard and fast. There's a lot of myths out there. I mean, one of my favorites is cholesterol which uh, a lot of people oh. will try and avoid like the plague without realizing that actually it's essential for brain function. But you don't ever hear that being mentioned in the mainstream media. Yeah, no, that's a good point. The cholesterol myth is a long and enduring one. And actually, the funny thing is, uh, it's another example of corporation hand in glove with government and promoting it because it, the anti, um, although they didn't talk about cholesterol so much then, it was more anti saturated fat was back a hundred years ago when Crisco came out, you know, that alternative lard essentially or alternative <laughs> to, yes. to butter and Crisco, which was all hydrogenated fat, which we all know now is horrible for you, um, was a big promotion by, by Crisco to, uh, push that product on the marketplace. And they were quite successful in shoving, butter, lard, and other things off the shelves, some more natural things. <clears throat> we all need saturated fats, and that's another battle that NHF has been fighting at the codex level, uh, is to not demonize saturated fats in favor of uh, polyunsaturated fats, which are actually highly reactive, very unstable, and pro-oxidant once they react with, which they easily do, with uh, with other elements in our diet. So, well, I can't uh, believe in this country. I don't know what it's like in the states uh, or any other countries that you spend time in, but I cannot believe in the UK that they're still making, <clears throat> selling that they still have a market for margarine, which, as I understand it, was brought in during the war in order to be basically be a substitute for butter. And you know, you say on your average tub of margarine not suitable for frying, and then uh, you know, like me when I was a a kid, tried to fry something with it. And it turned into what looked like plastic in the uh, in the frying pan. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, they say that margarine is only a molecule away from being plastic, or a few atoms away from being plastic. So um, you know, I haven't really studied that part, but I do know that at least since I was a teenager, I had the innate good sense to stay away from margarine. I always ate butter. Uh, and, you know, I've always kept my weight under control because I've done, uh, I've had a pretty good diet like that. 
And also it's much healthier for you. You need those saturated fats. You know, when mother's milk is over 50% saturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, it's probably 2 to 4%. You know, nature <clears throat> inherently gives us what we need. And yes. we... And this is something that people forget, and they try try to overthink things. And saturated fat is an important part of our diet. In fact, <clears throat> whenever you eat carbohydrates, say you have a bowl of oatmeal, and you just eat oatmeal, and maybe add sugar, brown sugar, or honey, or something like that, <clears throat> the carbohydrates can turn into sugar very readily. But if you add a pad of butter with it, the butter in there, the fat, in there, the saturated fat, helps slow down the absorption of the carbohydrates so it's not turned so quickly into a high uh, glucose level in the bloodstream. It actually helps you. You know, people would think, oh, I'm adding extra calories. I'm not going to put the butter in there. But they forget that it's not all about calories. It's about keeping your blood sugar at a nice normal level. And that's what fats do. They sort of modulate the uh, assimilation of carbohydrates and the conversion of it into sugars that go into your bloodstream and that th then invoke insulin and then you get into this whole diabetic insulin resistant mm. mode that you want to avoid. Fats are very important. Good fats are very important like olive oil and saturated fats like butter to help modulate that to help or should I say moderate that effect. So well, my, um, my basic approach um, as I mean, I'm sort of in my 40s now, as has always been eat whatever the hell you like, just don't eat too much of it. And well, that, yes. wor that works for me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a good one. Also, don't eat uh, at least high glycemic index foods within an hour of going to bedtime because it has a very uh, detrimental effect on the release of growth hormone releasing factor that typically occurs 90 minutes after we fall asleep. This in turn, the release of growth hormone releasing factor is pointed out by Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw, then releases growth hormone releasing factor, which tears down fat tissue and builds up muscle mass. And so if you eat a high glycemic index food, like believe it or not, carrots or sugar or something like that, um, within an hour of going to bed, it will shut down that process and you'll actually be more likely to gain weight. So just one small thing there. On the other hand, if you want to stimulate the release of it, you do exercise within an hour of going to bed. If you do that, that will help stimulate the release of growth hormone releasing factor. Well, that's interesting. Um, going back to uh, Codex Alimentarius and the uh, the rafts of regulation that have been coming at us for for some time now at the nhf you've said that this uh however well intentioned it's it stems from something that you've called brave new world thinking um what did you mean by that well the brave new world thinking is that we can uh, that's something that's on our website which if people want to go to is www.v or the t-h-e and then our initials nhf.com, so the nhf.com, and it's in the Codex Overview. And the Brave New World thinking is that uh, men and, and women can <clears throat> influence, well, we certainly can influence events, as we can see, but not necessarily for the better. But this mentality of trying to remold or remake the world according to 
really unnatural things that are unnatural to humans that we don't normally do. You know, my view of society and the economy is is one that the the economy and the society that works best is an organic one. This is a type of society <clears throat> like what I call the free market. And I don't I differentiate that entirely from what Marx would call capitalism. To me, capitalism is a negative word. It's a pejorative word. But free market is an accurate description of just you and me, the billions of people out there having day-to-day interactions, buying and selling, and when they do, having the economic freedom to do it. And when they do, they're voting with each pound that they purchase something with, with each pence that they spend, they're casting a vote. Do I want to get this or do I want to get that? What business is going to stay in business because the consumers have voted for that business? So really, this is all an organic process. And there's no one person, no group of people, no government in the world that's smart enough to manage that kind of economy, that's smart enough or has enough knowledge, even with the best of intentions, to control that kind of system. There are billions of these transactions going on every hour of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. How could anyone have the knowledge? The best they can do is throw a monkey wrench in there and monkey spanner, as you might say there, and muck up the works. And then someone's going to yell bloody Nora and make a big mess, but then they'll blame it on the marketplace. They won't blame it on the, the spanner. They'll blame it on the marketplace, and then that in turn launches yells and cries for more controls and more efforts to control these irregularities in the marketplace. And before long, you're down that slippery slope, and you have total control. Yeah, I mean, and, all of this as well it mirrors uh, types of restrictions that are coming in in almost every area of life. Some of which I referred to earlier with uh, you know anti-terrorist legislation. I mean, it's just we're seeing these increasing levels of control or attempted control everywhere we turn. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing I found, because a lot of the people in the environmental movement, the Green Party and the like, they talk a, a good a good line about uh, wanting to go back to nature and, and the like, but the means that they're espousing are very synthetic, are very artificial, are very top-down, elitist-driven means of achieving this. I propose the opposite, that it be ground up, be ground from the bottom up, that might sound better, be and enhance the natural organic processes of society rather than suppress the organic nature of society. And I think you will find no system is perfect. And that's the thing to always remember, you know, there are going to be bad players in a free market system, absolutely without a doubt. You you don't make a, a Marxian utopia. That's not what we would have on either side. But what you strive for is to minimize the problems, to decentralize the problems. So when a mistake is made, it affects just a few and it's quickly eliminated. Will mistakes be made? Will there be bad players? Yes, absolutely. In any system, I don't care what it is. But if you have a very tightly controlled, synthetic, artificial system, uh, hierarchical, with someone at the top, just imagine that person making a mistake. It'll affect hundreds of millions, maybe the entire planet in a disastrous way. Would we get lucky enough to get someone who's a genius? 
Maybe, but, you know, like I was saying, he or she wouldn't have enough information to do a good job, even if they had the best of intentions. I don't yeah, care I mean, who a, it is. a benign dictatorship is still a dictatorship. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, But a dictatorship can be one that takes the form of a democracy as well. Democracy can be just as dictatorial as a single man or woman at the top. Um so this is something that, that people forget. They think just because they cast a vote that, you know, everything's okay and they have freedom. But that's really far from the truth. I mean, I always go back to the, the, the sort of Aesop's-like fable of the two wolves and the lamb voting on what to have for dinner. Well, that's mm. an apt description of democracy because that's what happens. As someone observed in the United States, one of the presidents in the 19th century observed, he said, as soon as the people have the right to vote themselves benefits, then freedom is over. And that's exactly right. The problem in the UK, in England in particular, is, and what we had avoided in the States for a while, is that because you had king in parliament and they fought uh, obviously, well, depending upon whether you count the War of the Roses as civil war, which of course it really was, and then um, the Roundheads and the Cavaliers in the 16, what was it, 40s, uh, the fight there with the, with the Civil War and then the resulting Commonwealth, you had a victory of Parliament over the king, but people thought they had won freedom because they had the right to elect their representatives, not realizing that they, those representatives, those members of Parliament, could be every bit as dictatorial as the king himself. So in the U.S. we didn't have that, but now it has become that because over time the tendency of government is to accumulate more and more power. It's a it's a tendency that is inherent in the nature of government, and it's one that has to be resisted. Well, the U.S. has devolved over 200 and some odd years now to the point where everyone's looking, everything is is top-down driven now virtually, whereas before it was founded its beauty, in fact, is it was founded as a decentralized republic. Now it's a centralized uh, mobocracy with all reins of power leading to to Washington, D.C. and to a president that has more powers than George III did when the U.S. was founded. Boy, I, I wish we had the uh, George III instead of uh, Obama these days. Well, people are looking particularly with what's going on with global financial situation and there's a lot of ire and criticism being pointed at uh, you know what people are calling capitalism and quote unquote the free market but you know it's, as you've alluded to earlier it's not a free market at all what you have very obviously in the states as well with campaign funding you can see the revolving door between banks and corporations and and uh, government positions and um, it, it's obvious that it's not a free market it's, it's a form of corporatism and this when you give the snake oil salesman a sort of a seat at the table, as it were, uh, there yeah. of course that the snake oil will continue to be sold, and that regarding what we're talking about today, you know, health choices and supplements and, and foodstuffs, of course it's going to have a direct negative effect. Yes, well, it's funny that you mention that, and actually I'm glad you did, Greg, because that's a perfect example of why rules and regulations are not what we need. We don't need more of them. Look at the financial industry that went went bust in 2008 and was only barely held together with strings and with string and chewing gum. Uh, it's the most, along with the insurance industry, one of the most 
is the most tightly regulated and, and overseen by government agencies and government regulators industry in our nations, uh, both in the UK and in the US. And look what happened. All those rules and regulations, and yet the bandits and the bad guys were still able to get away with what they did. And they still are getting away with it. Like one sign pointed out, what was it? I saw a sign in one of those Occupy movements that said, how come they get, the bankers get bailed out and they didn't even do a day of uh, time in jail? You know, it's so true. Uh, they're getting bailed out and we're having to pay the piper for it. And it's uh, it's just absolutely obscene it's not even ridiculous it's obscene well and in my view anything that's too big to fail is too big to exist in the first place and you can certainly refer that to um, yeah. you know the problems that you see with such organizations to having superstructures when it comes to regulation and healthcare provision and everything else the same problems with with things being too large um, and too top heavy um, on your website there's reference to the published goals and there's some emphasis or stress on the published goals um, of Codex and their agenda. I mean, it almost implies that there there's there are some unpublished goals. Well, it's uh, another good question. It's it's like anything. I mean, the ostensible stated goals of the of Codex are actually very noble and ones that we at NHF could agree with. That is. Uh, they're twofold. One is to protect the health of the consumer. Well, who could argue with that? We believe in that. Uh, the other is to eliminate international barriers to trade in food. Well, we absolutely agree with that goal as well. It's just the means and the method by which they're doing it. They're erecting some other barriers to food trade just to grease the skids for the trade in those foods and those toxic substances that they like. What's happened is the same thing that's on an international scale is the same thing that's happened on a national scale in virtually every country in the world, and that is these vested financial interests have captured uh, the ears, eyes, and heart of Codex in so many ways, and they pushed their uh, bad products on us. So... I mean, this may sound a little funny. We actually support Codex. At National Health Federation actually supports Codex. We just don't like that it's been taken over by these vested interests and steered in the wrong direction, sort of like hijacking a cruise liner and then steering it to the wrong port. That's what's going on here. And um, so these two goals are very noble ones, uh, but... Those are the stated goals, but the reality is just a very different thing. Well, to get conspiratorial about this for a moment, um, there have been those who have said that, uh, well, I think we could probably, anybody who looks at the situation could agree, there does appear to be, if not a an active war on, uh, on human health and taking control of our own uh, health and well-being, then certainly a, a passive de facto one. And some people have commented that there is a... Overall, going forward, you know, an unwritten, unspoken, hidden population control agenda. And it's a controversial point. Um, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, Well, it is controversial. Let me tell you from more than a decade of personally attending these Codex meetings, and at this point, I am probably 
the one one health freedom activist who has attended more codex meetings than probably all other health freedom activists combined. So I have a lot of meetings and years, even decade under my belt of these codex meetings. And I've got I've gotten the opportunity, I've had the opportunity, and I've taken the opportunity to see these people up close, the delegates who are there. Keep in mind that the delegates that attend are, for the most part, very decent people. You know, they don't have, to my mind, in my view, and from what I can see, they don't have a hidden agenda. They may have the wrong orientation, overprotection of the consumer, this mindset that just so long as someone isn't killed on my watch, it doesn't matter about the invisible deaths that I didn't prevent, uh, they don't think that way. They think in a very regulatory controlling nanny state kind of way. And most of these delegates actually are nanny types. They're women, for the most part, who have this sort of motherly thing about uh, protecting people. And so that's their mindset, you know, lock them up, make them sit down and sit up straight and eat the right foods and the world will be right. Uh, So they don't I don't think most of them have a hidden agenda. And NHF sent another person to these meetings before me, a reporter. So NHF has been covering these meetings since about 1997, uh, but increasingly so, and having increasing influence there. But the fact of the matter is, in my interactions with them, most of these people are very good. But what's happening is the science they rely on through the FAO, WHO expert consultations and the others, I think, are is very bad science and it makes for bad standards and guidelines. And that's the problem. And I think that's where the manipulation occurs. And then there are some delegations that I don't think are very well intentioned. And also, in addition to these um, member state delegations. You know, they have countries there from literally Albania to Zimbabwe, depending on the committees. Not all countries go to all committee meetings. They go to the ones that interest them. But they're also INGOs, international non-governmental organizations. These INGOs are accredited by Codex to sit there. They sort of were asleep at the wheel, Codex was, when we applied and became were accepted in what was it, 2002, I think, 2002, to be accredited as an INGO. And since the 2002 meeting in in Germany, we've been going to these meetings. And what that does is that enables us to both speak out at the meeting, to submit written documents, to interact in real time with the other delegates, to really have an impact. And, you know, it took a while because at first we were really ignored. And now they just can't ignore us because we're so aggressively vocal there. Well, I mean, there may not be um, uh, superficially anyway, any sort of uh, sinister agenda behind all this. But it's still worrying that you would say that you managed to get your feet under the table when they were uh, asleep at the wheel and that they probably regretted it ever since because they're basically, you know, vetoing who can who's going to be at their meetings. And if it's anyone that's going to uh, be too set against what they're trying to do, then they'll be denied access. Yes. Well, you know, getting back to your main question, which was the hidden agenda, you know, it almost doesn't matter whether the delegates themselves have the intention or not. You look at the effect. So even with the best of intentions, 
they the effect is all the same. Look what's happening. Uh, some people say the agenda is to reduce the world population down to 500 million people. Well, I've never heard that mentioned ever or even hinted at or even winked at or nodded at or anything at a codex meeting either uh, behind any closed doors we've been admitted to or certainly in open meetings, nothing like that. Uh, no whispers of it that we've overheard, but it doesn't mean that it isn't there. But what I'm getting at, my point is regardless of whether that's on the agenda or not, the effect is leading to that. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. When you think about it, dumbing down the NRVs to lower levels, trying to put maximum upper permitted levels on vitamin mineral supplements that could really help you, eliminating from the marketplace those forms of vitamins and minerals that could really help you far better than the ones they are allowing. For example, magnesium citrate is absorbed four times better than magnesium oxide. But in the UK, most of the forms, certainly in the EU, most of the forms you will find of that magnesium is magnesium oxide, far less sufficiently absorbed and far less effective. And that's what they're doing. And then you look at the foods loaded with toxins, aspartame, all these aluminum, all these other problems, melamine, uh, ractopamine, and the like. And the net effect is it's lowering the fertility of the world through all of this. All these xenoestrogens that turn men into women, women into men. Well, you couldn't make a better uh, formula or recipe for lowering fertility rates and killing off people than what they're doing. These mandatory vaccines, fluoride in the water, uh, chemtrails in the sky, you name it, they're all there and they're all having their effect. These micro scanners at the, uh, at the airports now, the millimeter wavelength scanners that will, uh, actually alter DNA, uh, when I travel, I refuse to go through. I've never been through one. I refuse to go through. But they all add up into that mm. formula that is causing reduced fertility in men and women and killing people off. So, Well, almost, so agenda or no agenda, basically, it's a case of the road to hell being paved yes. with, with good intentions. And whether two and two equals four or five, <laughs> you can see why some people in their minds put the join the dots and do these calculations. Yes, and so in any way, in any event, <clears throat> um, so that's why I don't really go there because if you talk about well, there's a conspiracy to do that, then people turn off to you and they won't listen to your message. Mm. And frankly, it almost doesn't matter whether you answer the question of whether there's a conspiracy or not. I mean, it's nice to know, yes, love to be a fly on the wall in certain meetings and hear if there is or isn't, but um, the fact of the matter, it doesn't matter because the effect is the same. And that's what I look at. And that's what I look at too in the health freedom movement. When you see some of these people who are really loose cannons, are they controlled opposition groups or not? Or are they... Uh, are they just well-intentioned people giving the wrong message? Well, it doesn't matter. The effect is the same. They're misleading people, and that's part of the problem, too. And when you have a group as diverse as our health freedom movement, you get a lot of these kind of people popping up and trying to mislead people. And that's something we have to guard against and, and be careful of as well. But, you know, you find that in any group. You find that everywhere throughout the world. So basically the message to take out of all this, really, when it comes to nutrition and self-healing and health in general is 
people should do do their own due diligence really and be aware that there's more than one way to get uh, a certain outcome and uh, not everything uh, the answers don't always lie without with an agency or um, a government body yes well i agree with what you said but with a caveat and that is yes they need to do their own due diligence but they need to do that due diligence with some principles in mind Keep in mind that the government and what the government says, I don't care what government it is, it could be the Icelandic government, it could be Whitehall, it could be Washington, D.C., the White House, is not to be trusted. Absolutely not to be trusted. If they say the sky is dark, I would go outside and check. If they say the sun rose in the east, I would go and check. Because you've just been proven over hundreds of years, you cannot trust the government. So any government information is automatically ipso facto suspect. Also, any information from the mainstream press, which is tightly controlled by the government and by large corporate interests, is automatically ipso facto suspect. So if someone does their due diligence by just listening to the government, by going to the mainstream press, they aren't doing due diligence. They have to go to alternative media. They have to go to alternative sources of information and weigh that and think it through very clearly. So with that caveat, yes, do due diligence, uh, but do it with certain fundamental principles in mind. And that's something I've found throughout my life is if you're well grounded in your principles, certain things, uh, a basic belief in, in liberty, real li liberty, not this sort of nefarious liberty living off the backs of others. That's really a false liberty. Oh, freedom to have free health care. Yeah, who pays for that? That makes a slave of other people if you get to be a bum and just get free health care off the backs of others. No, real basic freedom, the right to live, the right to property, the right to uh, pursue a decent living. You know, the basic principles that were behind the original, the great England around the the United States when it was founded that was based on basic English common law that led to those liberties, the, you know, the views of the Enlightenment and the, and the free thinkers of those times, those are some basic liberties grounded in natural rights, or if one doesn't believe in natural rights, then other principles just as fundamental. Scott, I couldn't agree more. It actually reminds me what you just said on uh, a quote from some wag once commented that in the US, the Bureau of Alco Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms should be a store, not a government agency. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. If even, if even that, well, you know, there's something called the law of unintended consequences. And the law of unintended consequences dictates that Whatever action the government takes will backfire, and we could have a whole nother program on this, but it can probably be shown, in fact, I would say certainly can be shown, that every action the government has taken, certainly the American government has backfired and had the opposite intended effects, whether it's the war on cancer that they launched in 1970, the war in Vietnam, the war on drugs, the war on terrorism, you name it, it's gone backwards, and some would even say they created those, uh, the, the negative factors that led to the war on those uh, events. Certainly well, if the government has a war on something, we know we're going to get more of it. Oh, absolutely. Well, like Milton Friedman said, you put the government in charge of the Sahara Desert, and in five years' time, you'll have a scarcity of sand. <laughs> yes. 
a good point, I think, on which to, to wrap up for today. In conclusion, Scott, um, can you point people to, you mentioned the website um, earlier on, but point people to um, uh, your websites and other resources if they want to know more about National Health Federation and your work. Well, I would definitely invite you to, um, to go and look at our website, www.the, that's the article, T-H-E, and then our initials, nhf.com. So www.thenhf.com. Go on there, sign up on our free email list. We're fanatics about protecting your privacy because we don't want our email addresses bandied about. And so we certainly don't do that with yours. And we don't share, trade, or give away, or sell your email address to anyone. You'll never be spammed by us. And there are only a few people even in our organization who have access to it. But uh, that's how tightly we control it. But sign up on the email list. Join us. It's very cheap. We need members always. And uh, we put out a magazine and we uh, send out a lot of the good information through the email list. So I would uh, highly recommend that your listeners sign up for that to be fully informed as much as possible, at least if anyone can really ever be fully informed on health issues and health freedom issues. And then we actually have an organization in the UK called NHF UK, or if you're in Ireland, NHF Ireland, or if you're in Sweden, NHF Sweden, and so on, uh, that you can join locally to act. And we really need activists to help with some of these issues, like fighting water fluoridation that's going on in the UK uh, that already exists in Ireland, at least the southern part. And uh, we invite you to be there. And I thank you for giving me that opportunity to say that. And feel free to write me as well through the NHF website. Uh, I'd be happy to answer anyone's personal questions on these kind of issues, I mean. Um, don't write me about Aunt Sal, but, uh, <laughs> but on issues that we've talked about, and I'll, uh, I'll do my best to answer them. Scott Tips, uh, President of the National Health Federation, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg, very much. It was my pleasure and hope to do it again. Well, that's it for this time. Thank you so much for listening. As Scott mentioned, if you'd like to find out more about the issues discussed today, you can visit one of the National Health Federation websites, including the nhf.com or, for those of us in Britain, the nhf.co.uk. Until next time, be well. I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com. Freedom.com.